2: The European Union must stand together and united in the face of a Russian attempt to return to the old-fashioned regressive narrative of spheres of influence on our continent.
1: Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Politico in Brussels. And you just heard David McAllister, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the European Parliament. You'll hear more from him later in the podcast on his recent trip to Ukraine, and the role he thinks the EU has to play in this crisis. The shuttle diplomacy this week to try to defuse that crisis is also one of the topics for our podcast panel this week, along with the latest on the French presidential election, and in particular Marine Le Pen's campaign for the Elysee Palace. Let's get right to it. Warm welcome to Matt in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hi there. And joining us this week, I think, a podcast debut for Clea Colcutt, our correspondent in Paris. Hi, Clea. Hi. Great to have you with us. We'll get to the French presidential uh, campaign in a few moments. But first, uh, let's talk about the story that continues to Dominate the news agenda in Europe and beyond, and that's the Ukraine crisis. And uh, let's hear from each of you who had, um, well, protagonists in the ring, if you like, uh, this week. Olaf Scholz was in Washington uh, talking to Joe Biden, trying to... I think, as we said last week in the podcast, restore Germany's reputation, which had taken a bit of a beating in Washington over the Ukraine crisis. And Emmanuel Macron was in Moscow and in Kiev. Let's get to Macron in a moment. But Matt, first, what did you make of Schultz in Washington? Did he manage to do some damage repair there? I think he did, but it you know, was pretty difficult going
0: in. And I I don't think that it could have been fully repaired by anyone, to be honest, because there had been so many mixed signals in the weeks heading up to the meeting Um, This was one of their first face-to-face meetings, and they don't really have the kind of relationship that Biden had, for example, with Angela Merkel, and Schultz on the international stage also does not enjoy the kind of stature that Merkel does. So I think with all of the wavering Germany has displayed over the past several weeks on Russia, Nord Stream 2, Ukraine, and so forth, in terms of the arms exports, it was a a pretty tough task. And it, it did seem that he was a little bit nervous. There was one awkward moment after Biden was sitting next to him there in this fireplace. It was a very nice setting and Biden sort of thanked him for coming and did the usual kind of song and dance that he does with visitors. And Biden was clearly finished with his little statement and there was just silence and it was sort of Schultz's turn to say something and Biden had to then sort of signal to him, well, you can start talking now.
2: Welcome, welcome,
1: welcome. Floor is yours, sir, if you wish to say anything. Thank you for having me here. And really, I appreciate very much that we have the chance to...
0: And it showed that he's a little bit unsure of himself uh, in these settings still. But he did speak English, and that's something that his predecessor never did in this kind of a situation. So I think uh, I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, a sort of solid 6 Okay. I'm sure
1: he'll be pleased to hear that. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, I was impressed that he not only spoke English, he went on CNN, did a live interview, right, with Jake Tapper, who is not a soft touch, and spoken English and, throughout.
0: And I've heard you refer to this as a strategic ambiguity, but that strategic ambiguity got President Zelensky so angry today, he, he wouldn't even meet with your foreign minister um,
1: I don't know whether this is the truth. You don't know is, that? Or, okay. She is there. I sent her there. She will go into the front line. And, and I
0: think the, the, with the interesting thing about that was the impression it left back in Germany. That got a lot of attention. And I think people kind of saw that very positively and thought, well, you know, here he is on CNN. CNN is sort of a big deal here, it seems. Uh, although he didn't really say anything that significant, but I guess they like to see the hometown boy on the international stage. There, I certainly don't get that kind of feedback whenever I'm on
1: uh, on television. So, right. But the one thing that did get a lot of attention in Germany was where Joe Biden basically said, if uh, Russia attacks Ukraine, Nord Stream two. 2- won't be happening. If Russia invades, there will
2: be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We we will bring an end to it.
1: Now, this is a pipeline project, you know, connecting Russia to Germany. In other words, it's much more Germany's pipeline, if you like, although it's obviously, a, you know, a Gazprom uh, project primarily. And, but it was quite noticeable that Schultz wouldn't go that far. He wouldn't actually say the words Nord Stream 2 and say it won't happen. And That did seem a bit strange, right, that it was basically the American president saying in front of the German chancellor, your pipeline won't be happening if this happens. And he wasn't willing to either contradict or fully agree. Yeah, it was kind of a bizarre
0: situation because everyone knows what they're talking about. And it's sort of, you know, the pipeline that shall not be named the Voldemort pipeline, as it were. And it's not really clear to me still what what Schultz was trying to signal with that if he is trying to sort of keep Putin on his toes and thinks that by not sort of showing his cards, you know, uh, that's a better strategy than coming straight out and uh, agreeing with Biden. So I think, um, you know, again, this is a sign that uh, he is not as sure-footed, you know, in these situations maybe as uh, his predecessor was.
1: Right, who had 16 years of practice, if you like. I mean, this, I do think it's always interesting, I think, to see politicians, even very experienced ones who've held very senior jobs, but not the top job, that there's still quite a jump, right? It doesn't matter if you've been vice president or finance minister or mayor of Hamburg or whatever it is, when you're front and centre, even for people as experienced as Schultz, it's actually quite a steep learning curve. Uh, Clear. let's switch to you. Emmanuel Macron in Moscow and then in Kiev had this face-to-face meeting with Vladimir Putin, I think five hours of talks uh, sitting at either ends of a very long table, which uh, launched a million GIFs and, and memes and other things on on Twitter, but obviously a very serious situation and um, in some ways, you know, going into the lion's den, if you like, uh, Emmanuel Macron in this situation. Um, what did you make of how he did? And, and also, how was it portrayed and received in France, this kind of peace mission that, that Macron had kind of taken it upon himself to undertake?
3: Well, I mean, what's interesting is they come away. Putin and Macron saying different things about what was agreed during those five hours of talks. Five hours during which Putin says that Macron was torturing him. You know, keep coming back, and Macron can definitely go over, go on for hours and hours, as we in the press corps know. It's still unclear uh, whether, in the long run, this will have an impact. or or whether or not it just signals disunity in, in the sort of Western camp. I mean, but from the perspective of the French press, it's true that it is seen as, I mean, his mission is seen as a partial success, you know, he went over there, and there's this sort of idea in France that um, you know you've got to try the diplomatic route; it's always good, and it's it's a role that French presidents can and have undertaken in the past, and it's, it's not out of character for Macron to you know fly over to Russia and speak to Putin, and fly to Ukraine, and then you know that that is all seen as something that the French actually value. Whereas I think there's much more probing questions as to what. And whether it has a negative effect on, you know, relations with Putin to have Macron go in there and say things like, oh, we've got to understand the trauma of the Russian people.
1: Yeah, and there's obviously a lot of nervousness, particularly in Eastern Europe, um, with people wondering what Macron might be uh, willing to give away without, uh, you know, their agreement. And so you certainly saw some of that nervousness, I think, in some of the commentary around this visit. And I feel like we have to distinguish between some of the communication around it, which seemed very messy. You know, he gave the an interview to a French newspaper, the Journal du Dimanche, um, about this mission, which uh, then there was all sorts of dispute and argument about what exactly he'd meant and what exactly he'd said, because, of course, it was in French, whereas if this had been given to a kind of international audience, there might have been a bit more clarity there. And then, as you say, Clea, we had all these disputes about whether he'd got agreement. First of all, that there wouldn't be any military escalation and also on whether the Russian troops that are in Belarus uh, purportedly for an exercise will be uh, returning to Russia when that exercise ends. And the Kremlin was saying, well, we'd always said, nobody had ever said they would stay, so that's not a concession. We haven't agreed to anything that wasn't previously already decided. So the communications around it all look quite messy. What we don't really know, of course, is what was discussed behind closed doors and whether there is some plan in the works uh, that might, you know, lead to a de-escalation. Matt?
0: I don't think it really... Matters that there is all of this miscommunication at at the moment. I think that's actually part of the plan, at least part of uh, Putin's plan. And you know, as Clea said, it's very important for Macron to show the French that he's there as a you know statesman and is uh, trying to kind of make the best of a bad situation. That's very much the German approach as well. And I think Schultz is going to be traveling to Moscow next week. And I, it seems to me the strategy really is to just keep Putin talking and to just keep the ball rolling and to have this... Well, to be fair, there there would be nobody better than Macron for that. He would well, exactly. UG. And to have this kind of parade of officials go not just to Moscow, but also to Ukraine. I mean, we've seen pretty much every foreign minister, it feels like uh fly into Kiev and this week Annalena Baerbock the German foreign minister traveled to the front there in Donbass. so you know it makes it kind of awkward i guess for the russians as well to invade when you know these these ministers are there although i wouldn't necessarily put that past Putin. But it seems to me, though, that the other lesson of this week is that at the end of the day, and obviously, I'm I'm biased on this, and all my European friends are going to hate me for saying it. But it's uh, sort of the lesson of the Schultz trip in particular was that, you know, despite all of this noise in Europe, at the end of the day, this is going to be decided by Washington and Moscow, and that everything else around it is is just kind of White noise, And I thought it was interesting the, the, the way that, you know, Biden kind of called Germany to heal here, basically. And uh, for all of the talk also in Washington about including the Europeans, and they are including the Europeans. But, you know, ultimately, this is going to be decided between Putin and Biden.
1: Let's uh, switch topics for a bit. Uh, We'll come back to Ukraine later with our guest, David McAllister. But, Clea, while we have you, uh, we wanted to get an update on the French presidential election, uh, the campaign. It's all not far away now. The election itself is only a little over two months away. Uh, Although Emmanuel Macron, bizarrely, I would say, just looking from this distance, has not actually declared that he's a candidate for re-election yet. But everybody assumes that he's going to do that we know a website's been built, and at some point an announcement will come. So just looking at our political poll of polls just now, just to get an overview of the race, it almost looks like there's two elections really, like there's an election within an election, because Macron right now looks nailed on to make it to the second round. He's on 24%. So in a sense, that first race for him is run unless, you know, something dramatic happens in the next couple of months. Um, So there's this kind of second election going on, I would say, kind of election within an election to determine who gets second place, which will get you into that second round runoff against Macron, who, of course, is supported by his own centrist party, La République En Marche. And in that election, within an election, it looks pretty tight. Marine Le Pen, the candidate of the far-right national rally, is at 17%. After her, Valérie Pécresse of the conservative Les Républicains on 16%. And then comes the upstart uh, far-right candidate, if you like, Eric Zemmour, on 14%, and then the far-left candidate, Jean-Luc Mélenchon is at 10%. So, Clea, you've been focusing on Marine Le Pen. Uh, Give us a sense of the messages coming out of her campaign. How has it differed from last time when, of course, she did make the second round and face off against Emmanuel Macron? And also, how is she close up? Because I know you've been at a rally of hers recently.
3: Yeah, I was at a rally of hers this weekend. um... Is she even
0: nicer in person? (laughs) (laughs)
3: I'd say that she has an attitude that is she doesn't impose too much distance with others. She can talk in what appears to be quite casual tones. I mean, when you're part of the press group that follows her around, she's she sort of meets up with the press and she's there tugging away on her electric cigarette and giving you and almost joking about French politics Of course, she's much more jolly when she's up in the polls. And right now, it's a little bit tricky. You know, Eric Zimmer is coming back up the polls. So I must say that last time we saw her at the rally, she was not smiling. Um, And uh, what I'd say as well is that, I mean, she's running a campaign that's very different to 2017. It's almost, you know, she's trying to play the mooty card, like, you know, the German Angela Merkel, the mother who will protect... Well, you know, the French blue-collar workers against globalisation who will protect you against, you know, the influx of immigrants. You know, that that's she's very much playing a much more uh, sort of personal campaign. Now, whether this is actually successful is the big, big question because, I mean, obviously she's trying to reach out to voters beyond her base. Um, and I, I must tell you, when I was at the rally, I found that... It was a bit limp. Um, You know, you didn't have, uh, having done 2017, you didn't have that same excitement behind Marine Le Pen, which was, oh my God, she's going to get through to the second round. Oh my God, she's got momentum behind her. It felt quite unenthusiastic. I mean, people were there and the people who were there were very staunchly supportive of Marine Le Pen, but they'd all been bussed in from the four corners of of France, which is not the same dynamic that you're seeing in Eric Zemmour's rallies, even though he is polling below her. So, you know, it's not looking very good for Marine Le Pen.
1: Where was it, the
3: rally? It was in Reims, which is sort of one, two hours out of Paris.
1: And was it a big thing, thousands of people or or fairly kind of low-key?
3: It was sort of it was quite a big thing. It was mm. three, four thousand people, and so you had food stalls from the different regions. You had a band. It was you know quite jolly, and everybody because you know sometimes the press can be not very welcomed in the in these kind of things. But um, there, there was no animosity, no hostility, um, and uh, everybody well behaved which is a very different vibe from what you're getting at the moment from far-right Eric Zemmour, who's um, very divisive, very controversial and, um, you know, gets people's backs up, but also sort of in, in a way is, is the sort of thing that's, struck people in this presidential election.
1: Right, right. He's the novelty and the one who's kind of firing people up.
3: Yeah. It's interesting.
1: And maybe just finally, how is is Marine Le Pen tackling Europe and the EU in this campaign? I mean, last time, I think she was pretty much advocating France getting out of the Euro. She's certainly hinted at that in the past. And and obviously, as part of this rebrand that she seems to have done, changing the name of the party, uh, trying to broaden the base, it seems to me anyway from this distance, but you tell us that she's also toned down the the anti-EU rhetoric. Is that right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's really interesting is one person from the National Rally was telling me today that, oh, it's interesting, we are to the left of Michel Barnier now when it comes to (laughs) Europe. (laughs) <laughs> Which I thought was quite funny. I mean, basically they've rode back on a lot of things. So they no longer want to leave the Euro, they no longer want to leave Schengen, they no longer want to leave the European Court of Human Rights. And they justify it by saying that Europe has changed. So Europe has understood that basically it can't take all the powers away from nation states, that it you know, that sovereignty has to be returned. But you know, beyond that, beyond saying, oh, Europe has changed, it's, it's very difficult for her to be convincing on Europe. So, I mean, it's something that she generally tries not to talk about.
1: OK, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Clea, Matt, thanks very much.
3: Thanks, Andrew.
1: Thank you. And Matt, Clear, and I will be back later in the episode with some recommendations for reading, watching or listening. Now, right after this short break, David McAllister, Chair of the European Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee, on his recent trip to Ukraine and on how he thinks Europe should handle this crisis.
2: Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewellery. Only on BlueNile.com. me too. With the Alvin June Manny System, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours, and love your nails more than ever. I would know; I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny System with code Perfect Manny 20 at AlvinJune.com/PerfectManny20. That's Perfect Manny 20 at AlvinJune.com/PerfectManny20.
1: Now we'll turn to a conversation I had this week with David McAllister. He's a member of the European Parliament, chairs the Committee on Foreign Affairs there. He hails from Germany, although I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that his father was from Glasgow, which is why he's blessed with such a fine accent when he speaks English. McAllister is a member of Germany's centre-right Christian Democrats, the CDU. That's part of the European People's Party group in the European Parliament. And I started by asking him for his overriding impressions of that recent trip to Ukraine that he took as part of a European Parliament delegation.
2: My impression was in Mariupol that people in eastern Ukraine are very concerned about the situation, yet the atmosphere is calm. There are no signs of panic. So people are remarkably calm. They are trying to live their normal lives, despite this difficult situation, and they are also determined. And what we also notice as all other visitors who go to the contact line, every week, despite the ceasefire, military confrontations continue along the contact line. And we were, for instance, informed as we visited a Ukrainian military base in since the last ceasefire in 2020, every week in 2021, people were killed, civilians and non-civilians. So these are my impressions. The people are calm, they are determined, they are concerned, and people in Ukraine are facing every week Russian attempts to destabilize the country economically, politically, through cyber attacks, disinformation, fake news, threatening, uh, and many other examples.
1: Mm. And what, particularly for the, you know, the ordinary people that you met, the politicians uh, that you met, what do they want from the European Union? And how is the European Union doing in terms of you know, giving them what they want?
2: Well, the people we spoke to, Uh, the normal people in Zaporizhia and Mariupol, but also the high-level politicians in Kiev, everyone we spoke to was very, very thankful for our visit. It is very, very helpful that in these hours of uncertainty, visitors actually come to Ukraine and to show uh, support and solidarity. Every person I met is hoping, praying for a diplomatic, peaceful solution of this conflict. And what Ukrainians are asking for is solidarity from the European Union and the whole political West, including the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom, just to name three non-EU partners. And it is not only about showing solidarity and a sympathy, it's also about showing concrete support on the ground. And while we were in Ukraine, uh, Vice President Valdis Dombrovskis was also uh, in town to present the new 1.2 billion euro macro financial assistance package.
1: Uh, And in terms of the European Parliament's role specifically, I mean, how much of a role can the Parliament play? I believe you've got some suggestions about what the Parliament could do in this situation. Can it play a meaningful role when it gets to a big geopolitical crisis like this?
2: This crisis has to be solved diplomatically. And I welcome all the activities which are being undertaken in this moment to de-escalate And I also welcome all the different formats which are being used uh, to talk to the Ukrainian side, but also to the Russian side. Uh, One thing is important. The European Union must stand together and united uh, in the face of a Russian attempt to return to the old fashioned regressive narrative of spheres of influence on our continent. This is more than a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. This is questioning the whole peace and security architecture in Europe. And this is why this also matters to all of us in the European Union and in the whole of Europe. So the first thing is that we are united and that the free European institutions are united. And what I found remarkable about our trip to Kiev was we had colleagues from six of the seven political groups we have very different views on so many, many policy issues, but here it was a clear messaging that the European Parliament stands united. Now, Andrew, you're asking me, what can we do now? Um, I had the opportunity to present together with Natalie Waso, who co-chaired our trip to Ukraine, some suggestions for a number of parliamentary activities, this includes debates uh, in the foreign affairs committee and the subcommittee on security and defense we could look at having joint meetings of our committees in the european parliament and the Rada, the ukrainian parliament Um, there are many many other things we could do and finally while we were in kiev we handed over an invitation of the newly elected president of the european parliament roberta metzola to President Zelensky on the one hand to address the European Parliament
1: and also
2: we handed over the invitation to the Speaker of the Rechovna Rada,
1: Ruslan Cefanchuk. As a senior German politician, albeit your party is not in power at the moment in, uh, at the federal level, but I wonder how you feel about some of the criticism that's been levelled at Germany and its response to this crisis. Uh, You know, the two perhaps most specific points would be Germany declining to deliver uh, defensive weapons to Ukraine and also the question of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, how much that should be on the table in terms of sanctions. Are you concerned about damage to Germany's international reputation? Uh, Do you feel that the the positions of the the current government um, make sense from your point of view?
2: Andrew, as you mentioned, um, I am now... A member of a party that's in the op- in opposition uh, in Berlin, uh, that's something new. We Christian Democrats still have to get used to after 16 years in power in Germany, and it would be a very easy thing now for me to to criticize the German government. But I'll tell you, I believe a lot of criticism towards Germany is unfair. Uh, Germany is the biggest financial supporter for Ukraine we have done a lot, we will continue to do a lot. Our foreign minister from the Green Party, Annalena Baerbock, just went to not only Kiev but also to Eastern Ukraine, to the contact line to show support and solidarity. What I would say is that any German activity needs to be closely coordinated with our European partners and with our NATO allies and yes uh, the newly elected chancellor Olaf schultz was astonishingly silent for a couple of weeks uh, uh but now he started to become uh, more active um i welcomed that he finally found the time to visit uh, washington but um the joint press conference with Uh, Mr. Biden showed that there's a lot of uh, coherence between the American and the German uh, position. Um, Chancellor Scholz, obviously, in Washington, was visibly eager to demonstrate uh, unity uh, and determination. But perhaps some critics might be right in saying that he missed an opportunity to Settle doubts on all the German government's positions towards the Kremlin. But even if I don't share all the criticism, I did notice that the attitude of the German government in the last days and weeks has caused and created quite some criticism, uh, doubting the loyalty and reliability of Germany. And whatever we do is we have to be crystal clear Uh, We are absolutely united with our partners and allies. Now, the one point you mentioned is Nord Stream 2. I think one thing must be clear. If there is any further military aggression against Ukraine from Russia, Nord Stream 2 simply cannot go forward. We have to be very clear here. Whether Nord Stream 2, what will happen with this project? Well, it depends very much on developments in the Kremlin. It is certainly becoming increasingly clear that the geopolitical implications of this project were totally underestimated at the beginning of the project. And I can tell you, Andrew, as a German member of the European Parliament, I know that there are very different views on this project here in Brussels, and I'm also aware that the European Parliament at several occasions has voted with quite broad majorities against Nord Stream 2.
1: Let us end, if you just have one more moment on a lighter note, we like to ask our guests to recommend something, especially when so many of us have been locked down or in self-isolation, might be a book you've read or a movie or a podcast. And either something you've enjoyed recently or something you kind of always recommend to people as an all-time favourite. Anything spring to mind?
2: Well, as all people, I was uh, pretty much shocked at the beginning of the pandemic that all of a sudden uh, we were at home, we had time, no meetings. Thanks to my teenage daughters, I was introduced to the world of Netflix. Uh, but I must say, after two or three weeks, it I find it a bit boring and i actually started doing something which i hadn't been doing for 20 years i started to exercise Uh, i think i last uh, went running uh, when i was still in the german military uh, 30 years ago so i slowly started exercising again running a little longer every day a little more and actually um, i've kept this now that i try to exercise at the weekends when i'm at home in germany I've lost a bit of weight and I simply feel better. And this is something which I probably would never have started uh, without being forced to just simply stay uh, at home and not be able to attend political meetings due to the pandemic.
1: There we go. So every cloud is a silver lining. OK, that's an, a good tip and one that I should definitely uh, follow. Uh, I have some, have some lockdown kilos to lose. Uh, David McAllister, will let you get to your next meeting. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. All the best. David McAllister putting us all to shame there by using lockdown to get fit. But now for some recommendations from those of us who've spent more time slouching on the sofa than pounding the pavements. Clea, what's your recommendation?
3: At the moment, I'm reading the uh, Solitaire du Palais, which is the... Solitary Man of the Palace, which is all about Macron, and um, which is quite a good read if you want to go through the whole twenty seventeen to twenty twenty two. And in it, uh, there's one of the first scenes of uh, Macron's presidency in twenty seventeen, and as one of the first scenes, he invited Putin to go and visit him, and it was and and in the book it explains that this was one of the moments where. Macron was able to project himself as a leader, you know, no longer the young sort of um, advisor in, the, in Hollande's government, but somebody who was on the world stage. And, and so that he wanted to do this again in 2022 before the election. So that I thought was quite an interesting detail.
2: Matt,
0: do you have one? Well, I've been watching uh, Narcos Mexico on Netflix, which I find to be excellent and fascinating, not just because I grew up very near the Mexican border. It basically tracks the genesis of the drug cartels in Mexico going back to the 1970s. Uh, It's very well acted uh, with all Mexican actors. And um, if you watch it and you understand
1: why the war on drugs has not been won. Okay, Um, I might go for a lighter one after those two rather heavy recommendations. This is very much at the light end of the spectrum. It is um, comfort viewing. It's a BBC show called The Repair Shop. It's the opposite of any kind of television that involves suspense or tension or jeopardy or conflict or all these things that are meant to be essential ingredients of reality TV. It's basically... People bringing in stuff that they want repaired, and it is repaired by experts, craftspeople who bring this stuff back to life. They're often family heirlooms. And basically, this may sound quite dull, but people get very emotional. And part of, of watching this thing is to try and figure out who's going to break down in tears first, because it's very, very uh, moving as people see these things brought back to life. So there you go, the repair shop. All right, uh, Matt, Clea, thanks very much. Goodbye.
3: Thanks, bye.
1: And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. If you like what you hear, tell a friend, tell all your friends. It's the best way for more people to find out about our show and for our community of listeners to grow. Remember, we always appreciate hearing directly from our listeners too. You can get in touch by emailing us. The email address is podcast.com. At politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels thanks to Noah Zahn and our executive producer Christina Gonzalez and thanks to you for listening Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time